Welcome to another episode of Entrepot. I am Ia Noldi. And I am Willie Lampert. In this episode, Ia interviews Dr. Liv Stone about a recent article that Liv co-authored in Cultural Anthropology, which not only has a fascinating title, but is also in an experimental format. Ia, can you tell us a little bit about Liv Stone and her article? Thanks, Willie. Dr. Livia Stone is an assistant professor of cultural anthropology at the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Illinois State University. Liv, together with archaeologist Dr. Abigail C. Stone from Washington University in St. Louis, co-authored the photo essay, As Fluid as a Brick Wall, which appeared in the November 2014-29-4 issue of Culture Anthropology. Having done research myself on graffiti and resistance, I was especially inspired by the format of Liv and Abigail's work, which in innovative ways not just focuses on graffiti as an isolated act, but visually contextualizes it into a broader political material and social world. This was clearly a cooperation between an anthropologist and an archaeologist that also approached the interplay between humans and nature and deliberate versus random acts of resistance. Thanks, Ia. As a reminder to our audience, it is our recommendation to view the photo essay first in the visual order of the photos. You can find the link to the essay in the show notes. The written portion of the essay came about as a conversation between Liv and her co-author Abigail and focuses on how the physical, visual evidence that people leave behind can tell us about people's particular lives and human beings in general. Beyond the text and photo format of the article, your interview does a nice job of adding some personal context to her interesting work, as well as extending the conversation into the spheres of anthropological fieldwork, contextualization, and cooperation between disciplines. We now bring you Ia in this discussion. In the photo essay, you and Abby responded to the journal's effort to publish beyond traditional forms of text-based anthropological analysis. So just to get a sense of the photos, can you start by telling how you initially got interested in the walls? It's really a convergence of many years of research on different topics. I've been hanging out uh, primarily in central Mexico, actually, around Mexico City since about 1997. And the main force of my research has to do with social movements in Mexico City and the state of Mexico, which is central Mexico, and how those sort of anti-capitalist and anti-globalization social movements use video as a political tool. And as part of that, so I'm much more familiar with central Mexico and just, you know, spending a lot of time in Latin America. I also used to live in New Mexico, where um, part of the U.S., where the architecture is very similar. And I've just always been very attracted to the wall surfaces in central Mexico and how quickly they change. You know, people just paint on-the-wall advertisements or if a band is coming, the advertisements are, are painted there for political campaigns. For I mean, everything is painted right on the wall. And then it's just sort of painted over. And then, of course, because of the, the weather and just over time, paint peels, the plaster comes away. It's a much less sort of permanent wall surface than something like, you know, a more American 
wall surface like vinyl siding or aluminum siding or something that would be on the a cement building or red brick or something and i've just always just love the texture of the walls and kind of you know over the course of years seeing how they change and are painted and repainted and are taken down and built back up you know that's a kind of long-term just aesthetic interest of mine and then when i had the opportunity to go to oaxaca which is in southern mexico uh, the first time really that i was there was in 2007. i wasn't there for the main force of the apo the asamblea popular de los pueblos de oaxaca that really sort of occupied the city in 2006 for most of the year but i did have an occasion to go down in, two, in the summer of 2007 for a film screening with some filmmakers and friends who were uh, screening a film about the social movement for the first time. That film is uh, A Little Bit of So Much Truth by Corrugated Films um, in English and Spanish. It's Un Poquito de Tanta Verdad. So I was going down for that and just driving around town, it was still very contentious in the city. And you would see throughout the city these fantastic pieces of graffiti uh, made by very famous now art collectives, uh, Arte Jaguar, also Asado is another art collective. There was really a, an incredible outpouring of uh, graphic art um, then in 2006. But also what was happening is that people would come and paint over these fantastic pieces of art. So you would have this bright blue wall with that enormous beige or white just blob in the middle of the wall, which seemed ridiculous to me. I mean, it was it's so funny because they're doing nothing to preserve the wall. It looked, you know, I mean, they look much better with the graffiti there, with these amazing stencil art and graffiti works. So it's just like they're destroying the wall. When, of course, you know, I'm sure from the perspective of whoever is painting over the graffiti, they feel like they're preserving the wall. But it, it seems so ludicrous to me that uh, it, it just the sort of painting over with these big blobs as if it were just sort of announcing to the world, like, nothing is happening here. Like, it seems so such a pathetic uh, sort of holding on to a sense of nothing is happening, everything is fine. And two, because Oaxaca, I mean, it's a, Oaxaca as a state is a very indigenous state. It's one of the poorest states in Mexico. But Oaxaca de Juarez, the capital city, is a tourist center. Um, there are a lot of foreigners that live there. There are a lot of foreigners who own restaurants downtown. It's a very touristy place. You hear a lot of English and German and French in the streets of Oaxaca. And so tourism is really important to the city. And I think that for a lot of people who own businesses downtown, there was a lot of worry that the social movement was going to drive away tourism. So there was a lot of effort to, on, on some level, for people that were against the social movement, to erase the traces of that whereas there was a new kind of social a new kind of tourism what a former president of mexico called revolutionary tourism you know there are people like me an american coming in who was attracted to the area precisely because of the social movement right um so i mean this is the this is the sort of environment in which i became interested in the graffiti and there, there are wonderful books and wonderful pieces uh, published by the art collectives themselves that show the, fan, the fantastic art, uh, the stencil art that, is, that emerged out of that context. Um, and so I was much more interested in this piece in terms of the kind of everydayness of the wall surfaces 
um, in saying something about the specific political situation in Oaxaca and the specific kind of power dynamics that were going on in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. So Abby, my wife, is an archaeologist, and I had the opportunity when I was writing my dissertation actually in 2000 and. I feel like it was 2009, to be on a dig with her in West Africa in Mali, where uh, she does her research. And uh, this, the specific site, uh, Jenny is the contemporary town, and Jenny Geno is the ancient city of Jenny Geno. It was really important for the Timbuktu trade. It's also mudbrick architecture in, uh, in Jenny, and in fact, they have the, the largest uh, mud brick building in the world that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, which is a mosque in Jenny. And so, you know, I'm writing my dissertation and I'm thinking, and of course, she's digging, finding these walls, and the guys that are, you know, sort of helping with that dig are actually masons themselves who can tell a lot about this building that's a thousand years old, 1500 years old, by how the bricks are made and how it washed away. And, you know, the the successive years of building it up and washing it away, and then when it finally degrades, and of course it's, you know, buried under five feet of dirt um, or more. So, you know, in thinking about, you know, my effort in taking these images initially was just my sort of attraction to the walls and what was going on. But then thinking more about it, many years after I took these images, in terms of, you know, what, what would what will archaeologists say about, or what can we be able to say about, uh, about these cities looking at, looking at wall surfaces? So, I mean, that, that's a kind of converging context in which uh, we wrote the piece and sort of curated the images that I've taken in years past. In the photo essay, you and Abby seem to triangular the battle of power over walls and thus space between the artists themselves, but also the establishment, or you might say government or regime, and the natural forces. Is this where you see the collaboration between Abigail as an archaeologist and you as an anthropologist coming together? Very broadly speaking, and just thinking about human culture and what we do with culture and what we're doing with human society, I mean, this is, it's something that we make up. We make this up collectively. And I don't think that, you know, people in their everyday lives, non-anthropologists, are thinking necessarily about how much all of this is an elaborate game that we have invented to sort of keep ourselves occupied. And especially in terms of the, the sort of battle over public space, which is also really a battle over political power and a battle over who is going to be able to say what happens in other people's lives, right? Those are, in, those are incredibly important struggles But we don't often think about the very important role that natural forces play in our lives and that all of these political games that we're playing and we may as a species be getting close to the point where we really have to account for the fact that we've messed with the environment enough that it's putting human beings at risk, right? And even though you know this particular space, this particular wall is incredibly important um, in very real ways right now, it, it is that because we have created um, it doesn't bear any necessary relationship with that particular place in a, in a larger sense. And I also think looking at things in this sort of very wide angle draws attention to the degree to which the conception of private property 
is a historically, socially, culturally constructed idea that benefits only particular people in particular ways, right? And this is a, an incredibly important political point, especially in terms of Latin America and all of the Americas, really, in which conceptions of private property have been a way to take land away from people, take territory away from people, and dispossess people of what they own, right? Of, of the territory that is theirs. So, you know, the same place, you know, and I, and I think about this too, just in terms of the spaces that we occupy every day, right? I think that, you know, here at Illinois State University, for instance, I think that the students probably consider like the quad and all of the common areas that they might see and occupy way past everyone else has gone home, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning and think of that as their space, right? Like that is where th they own that space because they're there during that time. Whereas I think probably, for instance, the, you know, administration, security. I mean, other people would say, well, that's not actually your space that belongs to the university. And yet that conception of ownership and, uh, and care or just living in that space, I mean, that's also a, a conception of property and ownership that is also real and real for people. So, I mean, I think that you can see the sort of those different conceptions of private property and the constructedness of those conceptions of private property. Um, through looking at graffiti. Um, and then, of course, their interplay with natural forces in terms of, you know, rain washes those walls away. Like, it's a constant yeah. battle to keep that wall there. And do you think that we often overlook these natural influences in anthropology? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that there are some fantastic works that are uh, that are beginning to recognize that sort of ecological part and I think you know with some sort of eco-feminisms and uh, you know as it becomes a, a more real presence in what's happening with humans on the planet um, I think it's going to come in more and more but. you also mentioned graffiti can be a tool of resistance of politics of resources and in some way it's very easy accessible and it's very approachable for any artist or voice so do you think that that is why graffiti often forms part of the visual artillery of revolutionary or just artistic groups, as the ones that you mentioned here in the photo essay? Yeah, absolutely. And again, right, that comes back to the issue of ownership. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that you, I mean, our, our conceptions of intellectual property and who owns ideas, the fact that, you know, you would say, well, it's a single artist or it's in our collective or, I mean, absolutely that plays into it. But it also just shows sort of how easy it is to disrupt something. I mean, a teenager with a spray can, right? Um, which, admittedly, the art collectives are much more than that. I mean, in, in Oaxaca specifically. But just speaking about graffiti more generally, it's so easy to disrupt a carefully constructed wall. I mean, what part of what made the scene of these enormous blobs of beige paint on walls so humorous to me is because graffiti in itself, just a little tag or a little message, the fact that you would see that is so threatening um, that, you know, you would mobilize in an organized way a kind of repressive force to paint over the graffiti, I think just shows how easy it is to disrupt that order, right? So it's also powerful in the sense that 
um, it shows the fragility of a political order, right? You and Abigail posed a question that what can we learn about the idea of public space by noting that the most public of walls, those in the central square and city center, reveal the lowest degree of communal ownership and equal collaboration. How would you answer this question yourself? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's interesting, right, because you would think that if you look at our kind of definitions of public and private and in terms of public space, a space that is available for everyone to use, a uh, space that anyone can be in, right, you would expect, if you were an archaeologist sort of digging up the ruins of a city, right, or even, you know, occupying an absent city, you would think that the most important places would be those places that show the most wear or that show the most interaction amongst people. And yet in real life, if you go into those places, uh, city center, into, you know, downtown Oaxaca, right, in which it's a very traditional city center with a cathedral and government buildings and restaurants around a sort of central square or garden, um, you would think that those would be the places that you would visually see more people interacting, and, and yet those are exactly the spaces where the oppression is the tightest, right? In which those wall surfaces are immediately rectified. If anything goes up on those surfaces, they're immediately painted over. There are also the surfaces in which a greater effort is shown to, to push back natural forces, to maintain them so that they look nice, so that you can't see the rain, you can't see the weather. Um, and I think that's a really interesting statement into what it means to have public space, and that public space is actually much more... Um, much less accessible to more people than these sort of more peripheral spaces where people aren't caring so much about the surface of the walls. So you say that sometimes even anthropologists can come to a place where there's no words. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me, it was, you know, the majority of my research happens in central Mexico. I'm much more familiar with, you know, the particular social movement that I was working with is the Frente de Pueblos en Defensa de la Tierra, the People's Front in Defense of Land um, in the state of Mexico, right on the outskirts of Mexico City. Um, and so, so part of it for me was, I'm in Oaxaca, I'm trying to understand something about the APO and their use of, of film, actually, and their use of occupations of radio and television stations as part of the movement in 2006. So, you know, activists were more accessible to me because I identify from the left, I'm political myself, right? But for instance, the people who are painting over the graffiti who were fascinating to me are not accessible as much you know i mean if i had spent more time there if i had really made an effort i'm sure that i could have found out who was painting over the graffiti it could also have been really dangerous information for me to have i might not have wanted to alert myself to whoever was doing it right maybe that's an exaggeration maybe that's being paranoid um, i don't i don't know right but i was fascinated by that happening so the question is for me what can I understand about these political processes without having access or without knowing who is painting mm. over them? Like I say in the essay, I have no idea. Maybe it's a coordinated effort. Maybe it's not. Uh, many people in Oaxaca were telling me, for instance, the paint stores just can't stock enough paint. Like the paint comes in and it just leaves immediately, right? So maybe beige paint is just the cheapest paint and the only paint left in the paint stores. <laughs> and it's a lot of different people who are just you know, buying beige paint. 
maybe it's coordinated, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but there are some things that we can tell and archeologists are always in that position. They have no people that they can talk to and ask, you know, what is this for? What is that for? Um, and in fact, it's kind of a continual joke sort of between Abby and I about who is making up stuff. You know, from my perspective, archaeologists just make stuff up all the time. Like you find this thing and you kind of have to make up a story about why that exists, right? Um, and I think that cultural anthropologists are sometimes in that same position. You don't, you don't have enough information, right? So, I mean, that, those were the kinds of questions that we were asking and trying to see what we can understand by looking at something visually. You've been working with video previously as a political tool, and and you mentioned in the essay that the walls in the city are commonly painted to advertise not only products, but also, for example, festivals and other public notifications. Would you say that people would naturally follow these changing writings on the walls as a media? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So the graffiti might gain influence, even greater influence than it would in, let's say, in in the States. I guess so. The, the streets in Mexico were also very different. I, I think, you know, just in terms of architecture, right? So for instance, in the United States, usually the way that people have their houses is that around the house is sort of a, of a yard and there's no barrier between the street and people's houses uh, and the same thing for buildings right there's some sort of yard or there's a sidewalk and most times in uh in mexico there's a wall that's lining all of the sidewalks and you sort of gain entry into that wall and there's some sort of outside space within the wall right or even if the, the building is built around uh an inside sort of courtyard right so i think that the presence of of walls is much greater in Mexico than it is in most places in the United States. And so, I mean, you know, if you're walking through the street, you're taking a bus, just sort of moving through spaces, what is there to look at? What is there? There are walls to look at, right? And so the fact that people paint, you know, political slogans and, and legitimately, right, paint signs and advertisements, it's what there is to look at when you're going through city right so yeah absolutely it's a form of media and you mentioned then in some parts of the city and on the sides of some buildings sympathetic residents or owners encouraged the art and the slogans while on other locations they would just seem out of the way or abandoned enough not to care to be painted over so there was these lowered stakes in some walls and other walls were more attractive um, did that depend on the message or strategy? What what would strike you when you saw the walls? Especially in Oaxaca, I mean, there was a time in which the city and, uh, I don't know, it, it may still be this divided, but certainly in 2007 and 2008, the city was very divided between people that were part of the movement, part of the oppo, and then against the movements in general. Right? and thinking that the APA was not a great thing for Oaxaca. Um, to the point where, uh, you know, I remember in 2007, for instance, many taxi drivers would put a red star in their window to indicate that they were a taxi that was part of the social movement, right? So there were specific spaces, certain bars, certain cafes, 
uh, certain businesses that were part of the movement, that were de la banda, that are part of, uh, consider themselves uh, friendly towards leftist social movements in general, in which you see a lot more art that stays on the walls, right? Because they officially own that space, those walls, uh, inside and outside. Um, and so those are marked as friendly places for the movement, right? Whereas if you have another wall that is is policed and painted over, any kind of graffiti that's there is painted over. Um, I mean, those sites, it, it, it marks different kinds of spaces as to whether they are for the social movement or whether or not they're against the social movement. Yeah. So of course, those spaces that are immediately painted over then become a site of struggle in terms of those become the targets for graffiti specifically to show the fragility of the sort of political regime, right? And let's, let's paint over it. And when you paint over the graffiti, then I'll just paint on top of that again. So they would all the time provide each other with with fresh canvases. And would this typically be in more international areas of the city, more touristy areas of the city? Yeah, I think it's it's different, right? Because, of course, like I said, some of the tourists coming in are also sympathetic towards social movements, right? So some foreigners coming into the city are also going to seek out those cafes, those bars, those bookstores or uh, film screening spaces that have graffiti and that identify from the left, right? So, but it is a, it is a different um, sort of marking of that space to identify in one way or the other. Whereas, you know, downtown, I think that particularly the people that own the restaurants and the sort of prime real estate in the city center, you know, the rents are more expensive there. It's more sort of coveted space because of all the commerce that's going on. It's more likely that people that have a lot of money are going to own those places and are going to be not so uh, sympathetic towards the social movements. So, you know, and the local government does things to claim space themselves, right? So the, the city center is supposed to be available to everyone, but to discourage certain kinds of activities, for instance, the, the local government may put on a classical music concert on Sunday to occupy the entire square to attract some members of the population. I mean, supposedly the concert is for everyone, right? But that means that any sort of political demonstration that's happening there can be run out of the square on the grounds that it's interrupting the public concert that everyone is enjoying. Right? So I, you know, everyone's yeah. sort of playing this game so, in those spots of the city that are, uh, that are seen as important. Throughout the essay, we see this co-polonization. You both have this approach for what we can learn from the way the walls are policed, how public space is policed. But then on the other hand, you also have what we can learn from the effect of the natural forces. And they kind of seem to like co-contribute to the aspects of your, of your essay. Is this where we see the collaboration of your work as a cultural anthropologist and Abigail's work as an archaeologist? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, she can tell a lot by um, how the rain has washed off the slip of the, the, the sort of mud plaster on things, right? Which, of course, we're not talking about all the 
necessarily mud brick architecture. And Oaxaca, we're talking about brick and plaster, right? But you can tell a lot about a wall or a surface by its weather wear. And use wear is another thing that archaeologists look a lot at in terms of pot shirts. They can tell a lot by, you know, uh, tooth marks on bones, like how the animal was butchered, who was eating that animal, if there are rodents that had it available, right? So they're looking at all of these sorts of other forces on uh, visually and also the sort of wear on those physical surfaces. So absolutely. And and where do you and Abigail look to take the research next? Well, this was kind of a fun project of mine, actually. I mean, a lot of these pictures I took just because I liked them. And I had initially envisioned using some of these images for a gallery show that was a collaboration with another artist friend of mine, and that just never materialized. So, you know, I was kind of sitting on all of these images that I really like, and two, because of their flatness, and this is another aspect of sort of converging, um, because of their flatness, I often used many of these images as backdrops for, like, prezzies or PowerPoint slides or even the wallpaper for my computer, that, that kind of surface. And so, you know, when cultural anthropology had this new visual uh, piece, I was talking with the editors about something completely different. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a really great forum to use these images that I really love. Um, and Abby and I had, had this sort of continual conversation about all surfaces and in terms of archaeology and also in terms of, you know, my just sort of visual interest in, in walls and graffiti and, and things in Latin America. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a fun thing that was a byproduct of things that I'm doing rather than a continual line of research. Thank you, Ia, for helping us to delve deeper into Livestone's work. And thank you to our loyal listeners. I really want to thank Livestone once again for speaking with me, and Abigail Stone for letting me record this episode and their work. And just a few other things before we end this episode. We would love to hear from all you listeners. We want to know who you are, what you liked, and the things you would like us to take to future podcasts. And besides just hearing from you all, we are recruiting. If you get an idea for a podcast, get in touch with us. Anthropod is always looking for more people to explore anthropological issues, either based on an essay in the Journal of Cultural Anthropology or from the wider world. We will work with you from idea to finished episode to get your voice out there. No prior experience in podcasting is necessary. All that is required is an idea and the willingness to learn. Email us at anthropod at cullanth.org. We are looking forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, you can find all the previous podcast episodes at our website. Go to calledant.org and search for Anthropod. We also encourage you to subscribe to Anthropod via your favorite podcast player. As always, send us your comments about this and any of our other episodes by searching for Cultural Anthropology on Twitter, Facebook, or by sending an email via callanth.org. And I would like to thank you, Willie, for extensive help in editing for this episode. And I would also like to thank Rupa Pillay and Pascom Gufin for support during this process.